This is CNT Talk. Every week, two friends debate the issues of the ages as we agree to disagree. It's never politically correct, but it's always entertaining. Join us tonight so you can sound knowledgeable at work tomorrow. We're smacking you upside the head with the hammer of truth. Welcome to the show. Hello, hello, and welcome to our show. How you doing tonight, Tony? You doing good? I'm doing great. You doing I can't great? wait to hear what our topics are going to be. <laughs> I'm on pins and needles. Pins and needles. Uh, is anybody and ever just needles, on pins? Yes. Never just. I was needles? wondering about that expression. Aren't the pins sufficient? I would there think so. As well, I would. I, I I don't know. I guess it's when. Is it something to do with your butt falling asleep? Is it? Could I be. I, I don't know how that comes about. We'll have to research that. <laughs> yeah, crack our crack research team will get right on that. Uh, I wanted to start tonight with um, ingratitude. You know, ingratitude, where somebody does something nice for you, helps you out. And right. to thank them, you tell them, get out. You tell them, you're no longer wanted here. We needed you, but we no longer want you because you're icky. So let me play a clip, and I'll explain it after we play it here. The Samaritan's Purse Field Hospital in New York City's Central Park, which was providing medical care to sick people to help local hospitals deal with the coronavirus pandemic, is now getting kicked out, I mean, um, closed, after a city councilman claimed their services are no longer needed to respond to the outbreak, saying that the bigots should now pack up and leave now that the crisis has passed. That field hospital, which included 68 beds and over 70 volunteer medical personnel, had treated nearly 200 patients suffering from the coronavirus. Even still, Speaker Cory Johnson, a Democrat, said on Friday that this group, which is led by the notoriously bigoted, hate-spewing Franklin Graham, came at a time when our city couldn't in good conscience turn away any offer of help. That time has passed. Their continued presence here is an affront to our values of inclusion and is painful for all New Yorkers who care deeply about the LGBTQ community. Apparently, Johnson's problem is with the fact that Franklin Graham and his charitable organization subscribe to the biblical definition of marriage as between one man and one woman. Even still, during the month plus that the field hospital was set up in Central Park, there was not a single complaint of anyone being mistreated or denied services because of their sexual orientation, gender identity, or any other liberal checkbox. Their volunteers just provided medical care to the sick. So, had you heard about that? Oh, yes. Okay. So, I don't... Franklin Graham is the son of Billy Graham. Uh, for, the, for those of you who don't know that, he runs an organization in North Carolina called Samaritan's Purse. Uh, if you've ever seen Operation Christmas Child, where you pack a shoebox shoe for a needy child, uh, boy, or, boy or girl, that's the same organization. So they're bigoted because they don't subscribe to the progressive mantra of do whatever you want, however you feel. And if you tell me I can't, then you're a bigot. Uh, what are your thoughts on, on uh, the ingratitude of said New York City residents? Well, I would actually change your word. Oh, okay. Um, it's not ingratitude. It is actually bigotry. Ah, yes. Real <laughs> bigotry. Not fake bigotry. Uh, because the fake bigotry, it, what that has come to mean is you hold positions about any particular issue, whether it's based on religion or otherwise, that I don't agree with. And therefore, you're a bigot. Sure. No, that's not actually the definition of bigotry. 
the definition of bigotry is much closer to what this representative is doing where he, Oh, by the way, I would be interested if someone would ask him this question, no one will, which <laughs> is, so is it your position then that no Christian church, no Catholic church should really be able to exist within the confines of New York city because they also do not support quote your view of inclusion and whatever other, you know, mealy mouth, the, 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 the talking points about what they supposedly support. Right. Um, it is, it is telling that, and we've seen this by the way before, I think the worst sin they could have committed is after they helped people uh, who were, who were potentially infected or dying with medical services. If they had given them Chick-fil-A, to eat, <laughs> that would have been sort of the apocalypse, right? If they had, if they had done that. So this is a man, and this is this is sadly typical of most Democrats today and most progressives who has no conception of pluralism whatsoever, what that <laughs> even means, right? No, no conception of tolerance, even though he purports to be the avatar of tolerance. Uh-huh. And they are bigoted because what they're really doing is saying, you people are not even permitted to coexist with us. You must, you must be shunned. You must be pushed out. Why? Because of any conduct? No, because of any, anything that they've actually done to demonstrate that they're going to treat people differently? No, it's because you have views that I don't agree with, that bother me, that contradict my worldview, and therefore you must go. I think my biggest complaint is not that this this con or this uh city councilman reacted this way in the end because i think that's what they always do uh yeah it's unsurprising but that they couldn't turn down the efforts to help except now they can because it's over and, and when it happens again you better come back and help us but we hate you get out and I think that's well, the part that I get I frustrated by. There were some that initially tried to prevent them from oh, doing sure. it at all. Sure. Because so it wasn't as if it wasn't as if they were welcome with open arms. Oh, no, I know. We have a crisis. I know. Which which even demonstrates the level to which these people. They would rather literally we would rather have our fellow New Yorkers potentially get this disease, get this virus, potentially die rather than allow a group of people whose view of marriage uh, is different than ours, allow them to be helped by those people. Well, the, the, no. the lady I quote, I played there, she went on to say that, you know, doesn't matter how many scholarships Chick-fil-A gives, they're still being run off college campuses. They're still being told, we don't want you here, no matter how long the lines are, how good the chicken is, because you don't agree to what we think you should, right. just like this gentleman. I mean, isn't, isn't the isn't really the definition of bigotry. I don't have it in front of me, but essentially intolerance of those who have different opinions from you. Yeah. That's bigotry. Well, and so don't forget so hypocritical. Again, that's, that's why the, the delicious irony here is the man who is screaming bigot about Samaritan's purse is himself the embodiment of bigotry. Well, I, I had to point this story out because some people may not have heard it, but it's, it's indicative of the, issue we see everywhere I, I just think this is more blatant in my opinion that they are we couldn't turn you away until we don't until you fixed everything or not help or help fix everything and now get out because we can't stand you except when we need you to help and i, I it just bothers me I, 
I'd rather you say, kick me out and pull me in. Yeah. The other layer to this, which we've seen, and again, this, this person is a representative of the government. So to the extent that he is taking the position that there should be some government action yeah. to remove Samaritan's purse, that goes beyond private bigotry mm-hmm. into something that is flatly unconstitutional. And we, in other words, it is a abridgment of First Amendment rights. We've seen this in the Chick-fil-A scenario where multiple local government officials, these little tin pot dictators <laughs> who have said, we're going to ban your business from the airport. This was done in San Antonio. This was yep. actually done in New York. And again, acting as if this is permissible. It's like, wait a minute, you're banning them because of what? Oh, <laughs> explicitly because the religious beliefs uh-huh. of their owners you don't like. Mm-hmm. Again, not because of any discriminatory conduct. In fact, it's the opposite. The Chick-fil-A is a business welcomes all LGBT people. They employ LGBT people. It was literally because they decided, wait a minute, the people that own your company, they are guilty of crime think. <laughs> and you, therefore, we are going to use government power to prevent you from opening a business here. And the, the, the telling thing is that none of them thought that there was any problem with this whatsoever. No. This is the same mindset of people like Karen Whitmer, right? The yeah. the governor of Michigan, who seemed to think that because they have issued some proclamation that, well, obviously everyone must obey. <laughs> What's the New Jersey quote? Bill of Rights above my pay grade. <laughs> so for all of these people, it's either above or beside or beneath or simply irrelevant to them. It doesn't matter. It, it doesn't. And it's just one more representation of uh, closed mindedness, exclaiming I'm open minded, except to your viewpoint. I'm solely close on yes, that. Yes, that's right. I'm <laughs> I am incredibly open-minded, except to people who don't think exactly like I do. <laughs> so you brought up something interesting. I was talking to somebody today about this. Have you noticed every time there's a press conference, we're in Pennsylvania, and every every day it seems I think that uh, our governor is on TV talk, telling me how much he cares about me, and he's just doing this for my benefit. And you talked about Governor Whitmer in Michigan. Have you ever noticed his hair seems to be styled? His face has makeup on it. Now, how did that happen? I mean, he's in uh, Dauphin County, and I believe that's in the red zone of Pennsylvania. That means nobody should be able to cut his hair or apply makeup, yet he always seems to be set up for that. Well, maybe his wife is a beautician. I don't know. Oh, okay. And and everybody else at these conferences. I wouldn't want to be cynical about this, Chad. No, I wouldn't either. Yeah. There were more and less equal pigs yeah. as, as this thing goes. <laughs> I, I that, quoted that you to this person. I quoted you to somebody today when I said that. <laughs> the equal pigs. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> why, you know, again, I, I feel like you're doing a disservice to our governor to believe that there would be different rules for him than those that he is foisting them on. That's just, yes. I don't know why you would think something like that. I, I can't imagine. Now, I did talk to somebody today. Again, Pennsylvania, this could be any state. It doesn't really matter. Uh, somebody said, I think our governor is doing a fine job of this crisis. But I think President Trump is doing a horrible job. And I said, <laughs> um, I, if you said you thought they were both doing a bad job, maybe I could agree with you. If you said they were both doing a good job, I don't think I could agree with you. But what do you think he's doing so well? Well, he's slowly bringing the counties back online. I said, so let me ask you something. If you're not in Pennsylvania, this may not mean anything, but every state's got a little slightly different feel for this. So. 
as of Friday, May 8th, 24 counties of the 67 counties in Pennsylvania will be in what the governor has termed the yellow zone. Everybody right now is in red, meaning total lockdown, you know, all rights are gone. Uh, in yellow, really the only thing I can come up with is certain retail institutions that can open and you can now have 25 people in a meeting. That's, have you heard anything different than that? I don't know. It's, I've become, it's become tedious to me to even attempt. And again, you know, so what is, what's the magic, what's the magic 25 number? Well, think about this for a second. So on May 7th at 1159, you can have 10 people or less at midnight. You can now have 25. Did we suddenly find a way to be more secure? The science, Chad. It's all about the science. Well, that's where I'm confused. So he was questioned repeatedly. How do you get to green, which is fully reopened? Couldn't answer that. Don't have a plan for what fully reopened must look like to get fully reopened. And you can go back if we have an increase in cases, which if you open up, you will have an increase in cases. So yes. it's almost and, like a self-fulfilling prophecy to me. But here's the thing. We've talked about this. There's a reason he can't answer that question because there is no answer. Ah. That's the point is that once you engage in these kind of lockdowns, everything from then on becomes not only completely arbitrary, but there is no data point. There is no metric by which you can actually say, oh, green, green is go. What is it? <laughs> What's the measurement? I don't know. There isn't one. It's it's literally whatever Tom Wolf thinks that morning when he rolls out of bed. <laughs> and it's the same reason that we can now gather with 25 people. Why not 15? Well, well you and, can't. And, Where you live, you can't. I can't. That's true. I'm not in a county <laughs> that that is permitted, but let's assume that I am. Uh-huh. What's the difference between 25 people, six of whom could be infected, mm-hmm. and 100 people? Is there any science no. that somehow allows one to draw this numeric distinction? The answer is, of course not. It's just a number that sounded good on the magic eight ball or whatever. <laughs> and again, you and I have said this repeatedly. We're not here to say everyone should have been frolicking on the beach within no. two millimeters of each other. No. But the point is that when you are going to make these kind of decisions, which have devastated millions of people, you're to just fly by the seat of your pants and pretend that this has some objective empirical basis when it's just you pulling numbers out of a hat <laughs> is ridiculous. And you know what? I'd respect the guy more if he just said, you know what? That was just the number, uh, that came to me this morning. It was actually a winning lottery ticket when I was 18. <laughs> and that's what we're using because it certainly has nothing to do with Dr. Fauci. It has nothing to do with the CDC. It's I'm the governor and 25 is my lucky number. And that's what I'm going to allow and, until and we'll, I decide not to. We'll go green when I feel like it. And don't ask me any more questions about when we go green, just shut up and right. stay in your house pretty much. So exactly. That brings me to the next topic, which is, the great reset. We're probably in another recession. If it's not official, it's in reality. It's, it's real. The, the hey, by war- the way, Chad, before you go on one quick question about the recession. Yes. Is this still Barack Obama's economy? Uh, no, I suspect no. that that has been halted for a while. 
I suspect and we'll return to that when things get better. Yes. If, if, if things Just pick back you. up, it'll be Barack Obama's responsibility. If they stay down, it's three months Donald ago, Trump. we were in year 11 yes. of the, the 15 year Obama plan. That right? is correct. But now I don't know. Things don't look as rosy. I'm pretty sure we are no longer in that economy. And, and that would be true. So the question is the great reset. What, what do we anticipate will be different going forward, whether it's economically, whether it's socially, whether it's fiscally, uh, you pick it. What, what's gonna, what's the world you think is going to look like when we come out on the other side at some point, when, when the whole country is green again, what are we looking at? Do you think you have an idea? Well, here's my question. First of all, when the whole country is green, okay. Is there still going to be a requirement that everyone wear masks? That's the question, isn't it? I think because green, as I understand it, what green would mean is okay, everything is back open. Okay. But again, we, we, you, you know, you used to, you and I used to go to church together. You, you don't now because you've moved, but we, we, nobody goes to church large, right now. <laughs> right. But we have a, exactly nobody is. But when you can go back to church, we have a fairly large congregation. Mm -hmm. It doesn't really matter because most churches are going to have more than 100 people. Sure. So the question would be under green. Whenever that supposedly happens, um, are we going to be able to attend, but everyone is supposed to wear masks for the duration? I think and if you're not, if you're not supposed to, what's going to be the sciency explanation for when <laughs> that can stop? And, well, and I ask that seriously. I understand. Well, I don't know that there is a sciency explanation because nothing's been sciencely explained for what we're doing now. It's just, this seems like the right thing. The masks seem again like what we should do, but do they have a protection? I don't know. Nobody can remember, really say. Remember, the the experts told us for a while that the masks did nothing and were potentially counterproductive. And then suddenly, yes. like uh, this reminds me of the whole, um, you know, when you have a newborn, should it sleep on a stomach? Should it sleep on its back? The stomach will kill. No, no, the back will kill. No, yeah. the stomach will kill. Like every five years, there's a new expert consensus. So it was the same thing within a, th a two-month period on the masks. And look, yeah. I, I understand. Um, I wear my mask when I've gone to the store. And in fact, most stores won't let you come in. Although I did have, I was telling my wife, I had an interesting experience, sort of one of these, the demographic breakdown of this. So I went to Tractor <laughs> Supply. I, I already know what's going to happen. <laughs> because I needed a battery. Uh-huh. And for my mower uh -huh. and tractor supply has the sign out that says everyone needs to wear masks and everyone needs to be six feet apart. And the store was pretty, pretty full. And I would say fully, this might be conservative. 50% of the people in the store not wearing masks. Now <laughs> I point that out. I point that out, not because this was something that, that bothered me. You know, I didn't call the tip line. Yeah. I wish to report someone who is not abiding by. Although other people have, effect, believe me. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but it was interesting that it was very clear that there was a large segment of the people that go to tractor supply that didn't really give a, you know, what about the mask edict, nor were any of the people that were working there prepared to tell them you have to leave the store. It was right. kind of like, yeah, okay. Well, I brought Which that is fascinating. I brought that up to somebody recently. I said, so you're telling me a business that's struggling to survive is going to turn away a paying customer because they're not wearing a mask. I think there's places where that might happen, but I'm pretty sure if I owned a business, I'd take anybody's money that's coming in. 
I wouldn't well, be particular. The, the only countervailing consideration there is liability. Sure. Right. So in other words, because you, I wouldn't put it past somebody who says we went into tractor supply last week and there were lots of people. And now three weeks later, I have COVID uh -huh. and I'm pretty sure that's where I got it. So now I'm going <laughs> to sue. Right. I'm pretty sure that's where I got it because that's a clear cause and effect, even though I've been to 17 other stores in the interim. Nevertheless, I'm, we're going to sue tractor supply because they exposed me to this. So, so I agree with your point that in a rational, am I going to let them in because I want business, there would be a no brainer there. But I do think that there are some businesses who are very concerned about potential liability if they don't enforce that. And they probably possibility. should be concerned. They should be because there's somebody out there trying to nail you every time they walk through the door. So I want to give you a thought experiment here. So I'm wearing a t-shirt, you're wearing a t-shirt. I want somebody to go out, light a fire in the backyard, hold the T-shirt up to your face, and tell me if you can smell smoke. I guarantee you can smell smoke through your T-shirt, which means if you can smell smoke, which you can see the particulate, you can see the things going out. Does anybody believe for a second that that T-shirt is keeping something microscopic from getting through? The answer is no. It's not even possible. So you're going to turn somebody in for not wearing a mask or a business for not having people wear masks and then claim I got sick, but your, your mask is theoretically impossible to protect you from anything. So, it, well, it, I mean, I guess I would say, you know, now I know that you fashioned your Iron Maiden t-shirt into a yes, mask. Iron Ma um, it's, it's a Def Leppard t-shirt, by the way better, less permeable masks. <laughs> so I don't know that the t-shirt is a perfect example, but no, but people are wearing, they're wearing, um, uh, bandanas around their yeah, face. Exactly. What's I mean, the so difference the point is, is that how effective and people aren't wearing the masks properly. No. They don't necessarily fit properly. So you're right. Again, is, is a lot of this COVID theater? Oh. Yeah, probably. On the other hand, Look, it, it, it clearly is probably, let's put it this way. If someone sneezes in your direction who has COVID, mm -hmm. right, you're probably better off with some kind of mask on than not. Now, does that, does that make the, does that mean that you can't, can't get it? No, no, I don't think so. And how effective? I don't know, but it's probably better than nothing. It's probably better than nothing, but much like the TSA, I'm not sure that it's a whole lot better than nothing. It, it, uh, it's and, an inconvenience. No one, it's no a one can thing. tell you different. No, and that's the problem. You know, nobody can say, uh, we talked about this a little bit last week, but how long does it live on a solid surface? Does anybody know? No, they don't. So two, two hours, four hours, six. It, it might be days. 12 years. I, I don't know. What surface? By the way, what surface? Because every surface is different. Well, exactly. Door handle, desk, table. I mean, it, it's. We know so little about how this is transmitted, how it's how long it survives, what kills it, and yet we're making policy decisions based on no information. At least none that they shared. You know, well, I don't know why it's a big secret. If if you know, you should share it because it's not national security, it's just security. And, and as I said, as I said last time, I don't necessarily blame people for not having sufficient information. This is the reality that we're in. We sure. don't have good, but my problem is it's okay to try to make policy based on whatever limited information you have. My objection is you're not revisiting those policies in light of 
changing facts on the ground, changing information. It's basically as if once we've enshrined this policy, yeah. no one dare question it. And yeah. once I add another layer on another policy that's even more draconian than the last one, no one dare question it. Well, it should be the opposite. There should be a lot of questioning. There should be a lot of open debate. There should be skepticism. And the people in positions of authority who are making these policies should be the first ones who are willing to say, hey, you know what? New information suggests we got that wrong. We're going to modify our policy now. Nobody would blame them no, for that. You should. I mean, other unless you're just you're somebody who's a crank who wants to blame everyone. Sure. Uh, but nevertheless, people who are in those positions should be the first ones who are constantly willing to ask themselves. Should this be revisited? Should yep. this be changed? What are the current facts on the ground? But I see no indication that any of these people, you know, mm -hmm. the usual suspects, the Cuomos and the DeBlasio. Which one? Which Cuomo? Wolves, <laughs> right? And the Whitmers. And you go on and on are willing to revisit anything because no. they've basically decided I'm your better. Yes. You need to I mean. shut up and do what I say. Well, so and, and if you question me, you'll be, you know, you'll be, you'll be silenced. All right. So let's go back to the reset. After this is over, you think we might be still wearing masks because nobody can really tell us, are, are we going to be Asia or wearing masks all the time or a, a certain percentage of the population is always going to wear a mask now out in public? Uh, do we, do we, well, do we shake hands? Well, let's assume there's never going to be a cure. Maybe there's a vaccine that's 40% effective, much like the flu vaccine. Yep. Do we shake hands? Do we, do we have large groups? I mean, I'm, I'm talking to people at work and the conversation is, are we ever going to have a large meeting again? Are there going to be, uh, you know, professional meetings where thousands of people might be gathered in a convention hall? Are, are those things going to happen? I mean, I, I think they will eventually, but I, I don't know. Well, the big test is going to be because there's going to be a level of sort of heightened fear, no matter what the circumstances are. But sports is going to be the big testing ground. Yeah. All right. Because people in this country are, you know, are rabid about their sports fandom. So the question is, are you going to be able to pack a hundred thousand people into picket Beaver stadium, the horseshoe, right? Go down the line for college football in the fall. And maybe not even this fall, let's just say, because we're not even sure we're going to have a college football season at this point or, or any professional season or, or college season. Although but the NFL releases their schedule on Thursday. Let's say we <laughs> get to full green and in 2021, mm -hmm. are you still going to see those people sitting in those stadiums watching a mass sporting event? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, there's going to certainly be some number, but well, is it going to be 70%? Is it going to be 50%? I, I don't know. ESPN had a poll today that said 85% of sports fans who responded were okay with sports coming back without fans in the stands. We talked about yeah, it a little they, bit last week. That's well, let's put it this weird. Way. They, they may be theoretically okay with that. Not in but reality. When they actually try to watch the product. Yeah. When there's no fans there, that, that poll will change. Well, I, I think that's us fans. If you go to England where they've had soccer games without fans because of bad behavior, it's it's almost like it doesn't happen. I mean, the the teams play, but it might as well be a scrimmage, you know, for the trainers, because nobody saw it, nobody gets excited about it because they didn't, they don't get to be there. I, I'm not well, a particularly the other, love. The I don't, other fascinating experiment would be mm -hmm. how much would outcomes change 
based on fans or no fans. Now you would think that's a silly question, right? Well, it's still no. the same people that are playing, but no, it matters. the entire atmosphere, you know, just in terms of adrenaline, we talk all about, you know, home field advantage. And again, statistically, that I think is a, is overblown. If you actually look at the percentages, they're still fairly close, but nevertheless, having fans in an arena changes how, how, how it's played. It just does the energy level. Uh. Uh, so now maybe, you know, it would just be fascinating an alternative universe to say, let's pl- let's have these teams play each other 10 times with fans, without fans and see if the results differ in mm-hmm. any statistically meaningful way. I think they would. I think they would. I don't know how much, but it would change. It would have to change how the game is played. I think um, football would be the only major sport in the U.S. where I think that would, where home field has some advantage, making it too loud for the offense to hear cadences. But they've come around that, you know, that, that's not as bad. But I can't think well, of baseball, I mean, basketball. basketball. I mean, professional basketball, the elite teams have massive home court advantages. Now, part of this because they're just really good teams. Sure. But if you look at their home, and road splits. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm just thinking back, like, you know, you look at the, the, the dynasties, the bulls, when they won, they were almost unbeatable at home. The eight, the, the Celtics with bird Parrish, and McHale, almost unbeatable at the Boston garden. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and they didn't win. Like they're typically, you know, they have two or three losses in an entire season at home. They're losing 10 or 15 games on the road. Again, part of that is it's travel, all these other variables, right? Mm-hmm. You're not as comfortable. You may be jet lag. You're playing back to back. I get it. Yeah. But there definitely would seem to be some rather significant advantage to having your home crowd there screaming you on when you're playing. Well, I think, again, it's Same football's the only, yeah, well, football's the only one with a neutral field for its ultimate championship. So, quote unquote neutral field depends on Semi- the team. Exactly. Some teams it's a little more, less neutral. But, if you think about it, you know, baseball, basketball, hockey, they all, they switch, they switch places, but they all get to play at home. Whereas football doesn't necessarily get that. And I agree with you. I think it's probably a lot of the, I get to sleep in my own bed. I get to see my family. I'm not uprooting my routine. I think that has something to do with home field advantage, but who knows? So we get beyond sports. So let's say sports, at least for the foreseeable future are fanless or at least limited fans i don't know every six feet i mean that would make the sitting in the stands a lot more comfortable but it wouldn't be really that loud which might really detract from the game uh what about politics mail-in ballots online voting oh you and i talked about that i mean this is going to be used to justify all manner of quote-unquote transformative sure agenda items and 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 largely coming from the left and they've made no secret about that the big push guaranteed uh for the upcoming election is going to be this idea that we're going to have mail-in ballots we must we must have them it's unsafe we can't possibly go to the polls and if that is permitted uh i think again that becomes sort of the uh the rubicon in terms of any possibility of having quote unquote fair elections because that is simply an invitation, an open and obvious invitation for massive fraud. There's already fraud going on. You try, you do mail-in ballots. The integrity of elections is completely exploited. It's done. Finito. What did you say the person that says, well, I already do a absentee ballot? What's the difference? Well, that's fine. That's fine. There's a limited number, okay? And sure. those are granted for specific circumstances where that person has no choice. Okay. That is a, a policy exception 
that is made to address the circumstances of people who would otherwise be disenfranchised. I don't have a problem with that. In other words, it's an exception that makes sense because we still want those people to be able to vote. It cannot become the rule when you have able-bodied people who are otherwise capable of going to a poll and exercising the bare minimum of their civic responsibility to say, yeah, don't worry about it. We'll just get, we're just gonna let people mail stuff in. So I am, I don't know how I feel about this because, uh, you know, certain, uh, I think Estonia does online and they've got a code that they have to type in to, they've been doing online balloting for 15 or 20 years now. That's a very small scale. It's a very small sample. Uh, I don't know how it would work here, but I, I don't disagree with you. I think the, the opportunity for fraud, and I'll be honest on both sides, it doesn't matter which side there's going to be fraud. I think I know which way will be better at it. Uh, well, they, let me ask shown you that. Chad. Yeah. Which are both sides pushing for mail-in ballots? No. For no. obvious reasons. And there's a reason there's yes. a reason for that because one of the sides would immediately weaponize that. This has been their this has been their goal mm -hmm. from the beginning to to limit any and all even the most minimal safeguards, right? That, okay, this whole thing about voter ID right? Voter ID is Jim Crow. Voter ID is suppressing <laughs> yeah. votes. So wait a minute, let me yeah. understand this. You can't go, you're not capable of obtaining a, an ID that you can get at the DMV, which by the way, you, if you don't have one, you can't cash a check. You can't fly on a plane. You can't obtain a mortgage. You can't get a job. There's about a thousand things in your daily life that you can't do. Yet we are told that this is an a completely unfair, unjust, discriminatory imposition on certain people. Mm -hmm. So the people that don't, who think it's a Herculean task to obtain a photo are the same ones that now say, listen, all we need to do, we just need to have people mail them in. Now, if you know anything about ballot harvesting, okay, <laughs> which is exactly how these people work, the shock troops on the ground, they show up with these ballots, they walk to someone's house, they knock on the door, they say, hey, you need to vote in this election. We're going to help you fill out this ballot. Guess what? Mm -hmm. They're not filling it out for the uh, the MAGA column, okay? No. And so there's going to be millions of situations like that. There's going to be clearinghouses where people are just going to be filling out ballots for, you know, this is my pet's ballot. Yep. This is the dead felon's ballot. Yep. ballot. The, and you're right. This will go on on both sides, but the vast majority of this will be used on the left because this is what they've wanted from the beginning, mm -hmm. Okay. The, the conservative position is still, we don't want this. Right. We don't want this opportunity to game the system. Right. We think people need to show up in person, demonstrate who they are, and cast a vote. That's how you ensure the integrity of elections. So it'll be fascinating to see how much and how vociferously they push this as we get closer and closer to November. And, and just for those of you who think Tony's making this up about the uh, voting mills, this happened back in the uh, 18th century. This, this was happening in early um, United States, uh, early elections, where people go around and have the ballot filled out for the, can't, for the populace and hand it to them and say, all you have to do is turn this in. And it, it, it was a sure. straight party ticket. But, and then somebody come along and, you know, you don't want that, you want this one. And they'd make a convincing argument. And they just hand it to them. So they didn't have to write it in. They just handed in this piece of paper that was already printed for them. So what's the difference? 
Uh, Read any article on when they purge voter rolls, which again is something <laughs> that the left opposes, where they find there's tens upon tens of thousands of people who are on voter rolls who supposedly voted who, oh, they're dead. Yes. They're oh, they're not actually from this state. Mm -hmm. They don't live what here anymore. What you hear anymore. from the media constantly is that there is no in-person voter fraud, right? No. It's all it's all this made up Yep. Um, yep. you know, crisis or that this doesn't happen. That's complete nonsense. And to Chad's point, if you know anything about machine politics <laughs> in this country, go down to the Philadelphia precinct during the <laughs> Obama era when the murals on the wall were for Barack Obama. Yeah. And when, when the voting totals came in, it was in excess of 100% of all eligible voters voting for one guy. Okay. So yep. if you think that this kind of thing isn't happening, I don't know what to tell you other than you're living on a different planet right now. And if mail-in ballots are allowed, it's again, it's over. It is. It is. So balloting could look different. We'll sh we shall see what what transpires. Employment? Well, yeah. How many people are Employment. now going to, you know, they're not going to go to work. They're going to they're going to work from home. They're going to sit at their computer and realize, oh, I can do 80% of my job, or maybe I'll show up to work one day a week. Well, do, do you think that changes? So I had this discussion with somebody recently and they said, you know, this has shown me that I can work from home. I can do most of what I need to do once in a while. I need to come in because I might have to have a meeting. There might Face to face sometimes works better. But why was this suddenly the catalyst? It wasn't like telecommuting didn't exist before this and there weren't people doing it. It's a mass thing right now, but why, why suddenly did, is it because employers said, well, I own this building and I got to pay for it. So you might as well be here or I don't think you're working if you're not here. I, I do think that can change, but I think it's going to go back because I think people have invested interest in maintaining the structure they have and they're going to kick and scream and claw to maintain that because I've got this 10 story building and I got to pay for it and nobody wants to buy it because everybody's working from home. So you're going to have to work here because I got to have a reason to have the building. I mean, is that possible? Well, I mean, look, there's a difference between I can work from home and is that the most optimal way to sure. work in certain careers? It is there. There's yeah. no reason, but in other professions, like even speaking for me as an attorney, yeah. Can, can I, can I do stuff remotely? Yes, absolutely. Our files are all scanned in and I have access to them, but it is not, it is not convenient sure. in many cases for me to do that. And you also can't tell me that there's going to be some level of productivity drain. Look, when you're sitting at home on a nice day, it's like, huh, it's 11 o'clock. I've done two hours of work. You know what? Maybe I'll go mow the lawn. Maybe I'll go outside and walk the dog. Mm -hmm. Those kind of distractions do not exist when you're, when you're at an office. And there, there's also something to be said for interpersonal, the ability to walk down to somebody's office, the sure. ability to have meetings. Sure, you can do Zoom. It's just not the same. It isn't. Right? It isn't. So I don't know that it's for certain careers and certain professions, there's probably no difference. And, and maybe they should have thought of this. Maybe they're already doing that, maybe. right? But for others, there's a lot of suboptimal things that go along with it, even though it can be done. Yeah, I, I think I think it's not an all or nothing type of endeavor, and I think that's what we need to remember. 
maybe certain things can be done remotely and certain things need to be done in person, but it's not all of one or all of the other. And I, I would contend that there is that possibility for distraction at home, but we've all been in an office where there's constant distraction because there's always somebody in the office who just shows up at your door constantly and wants to chat and yak about nothing. that's not productive, but they're there. And if they weren't there, you'd get so much more done. And every office has one or two of these people. So I, I contend that sometimes in office isn't necessarily more productive. It could be depending on what you're trying to do, but it doesn't necessarily make it so just because you're there. And I know there's bosses out there to think that, Hey, if you're here, I can watch you and I can make sure you're, you're here or you're doing something. You're not looking at your phone or you're not working on the computer on, you know, your resume, whatever. So jobs, uh, maybe, maybe not. Um, how about tax day? This year, tax day everywhere is July 15th right now. So what's that mean? Why, why are we going to go? We're going to change it to July. We're going to keep it in April. Does it make sense in April? Or is it just an antiquated date that we, since 1913, we've had? Who knows? I, you know, I, it appears that even though I filed my taxes in, in February, my return will be uh, getting back to me since the government owes me money, sure. uh, you know, past July 15th. So I guess for me, it doesn't really much matter. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. You're right. I mean, I, I haven't really thought much about tax day, nor do I think it, it matters all that much, except for the fact that I guess what the government has to calculate is if you're moving the tax day back by two months, um, revenue, tax revenue is inevitably going to be two months further delayed potentially mm -hmm. since you've got all these late filers. So I, I don't know what that does. I, I would think that there's not going to be a permanent move to push that forward. Okay. Because, because of the, because of the revenue implications of that for people that owe. Well, does the, does the flat tax get a relook because it's so much simpler? You Maybe know, we, we, right now, you can well, get it gets a relook depending on who is well controlling who's president the government because yeah. it's going to get no relook whatsoever if we are in a you know a democrat administration that that will never be considered ever okay. fair enough fair enough do we go to and this is something congress wants they want to be able to vote remotely do we need to have congress people and senators physically present to vote now it's always been but do we need that? Is it required? And if it's not required, is it still a full-time job? Well, that's do it remotely? correct. In other <laughs> words, there would be a whole bunch of other consequences from that, including do we still need to pay you so much? Exactly. And, yeah. Do, do you really even need to have, like you said, a year-round position if you can just sit at home and do this? I do think there is something to be said for requiring them when they are taking votes. Now, maybe there are certain votes, and they do this anyway. Right. Where they're they're not showing up on, sure. you know, some who knows, some minor budgetary item, whatever it's going to be. A lot of them aren't there to begin with anyway. You know, right. they're right. voting present, whatever. They're missing votes. Look at look at what happens when senators are campaigning for president. They mm -hmm. basically and this is true for both Democrats and Republicans. Sure. They just miss all the votes. Yeah. It's not there. Yeah. Because well, they can't be. Because they physically can't be there. I get that. now. Maybe there's an argument that says that's why remote voting should be allowed because then they could still participate. I don't know. Well, I'm I'm a traditionalist, um, in in some ways that 
the idea of remote voting to me is one of those sort of slippery slopes where, mm -hmm. look, there's something to be said for standing there and being heard and being on a, on a roll call or just casting a vote to be present you know, in our nation's capital, that's kind of like one of the minimum thresholds for the job sure. you're being paid to do yeah. is, yeah, take the time to be present and actually in person cast votes on the stuff that's actually your job. Well, I, I think it's, I'm not sure casting a vote is participating, although in college, we, uh, my college, they weren't allowed to take role, so they would take participation. Uh, and if you weren't there, you could not participate. Therefore, you got a zero for participation that day, even though it effectively was a roll call. Uh, I'm not sure how effective somebody like, you know, Bernie Sanders has been being in the Senate. He hasn't really accomplished anything of note. So being there hasn't helped him even when he is there. I, I don't know. I don't know how no, I feel I'm about not, that. I'm not making the argument that being there or casting a vote somehow makes you effective. Okay. That's oh, good because uh, it doesn't, obviously. It really doesn't. I mean, look, <laughs> if, that, if that was the test, then half the people or more that are voting, I would want to preclude them from voting. None of their votes have accomplished anything. Exactly. They've, they've accomplished the opposite of, of what I would consider to be good policy. And, of course, that's true for anyone on the other side. So it's not a question of, well, is your vote accomplishing something? You're there because – that's that is part of your job description, which is there's legislation that is being proposed and passed. And the least you can do is show up and actually be counted in person on where you fall, whether I think it's misguided or not, or whether I think it's good policy or not. Okay. How about travel and tourism? Does that do we ever plan the summer vacation again? Oh, sure. Yeah, of course. Okay. Well, I mean, do, do, do does a place like Disney World open again? Well, that's a they open again, but that's that's a more interesting question is these giant venues, right? Mm -hmm. Theme parks, Disney World, uh, you know, even for instance, uh, you know, we talked about sports, you know, NASCAR, mm -hmm. right? And NASCAR any place <laughs> where there's going to be there's any place where there's going to be thousands and thousands of people gathering sort of, you know, shoulder to shoulder in these very, very crowded environments, that that's going to be interesting. I mean, I think even Disney came out and said it's not clear whether Disney World and Disneyland, by extension, would even reopen in 2021. Jeez. So that that's kind of an open question. Well, that, that's the question. So the tickets are already prohibitively expensive in a lot of cases. If you limit the number of people, then you, by extension, probably have to raise the price of the tickets even further because you can't get as many people through does it become even a destination where people say it's like a once in a lifetime trip and that's pretty much all i can get you know because well, question because it, it would become a fascinating business model where they might say you know what unfortunately we can no longer cater to the common man sure now this is going to be a much more appealing vacation for those who can afford it because you know what there's not going to be whatever 20 gazillion people in the park. Right. There's only going to be X number and you're going to be able to get on every ride in five minutes, but it's going to cost you triple or quadruple right. of what it used to. And right. then the question is, can you, can you balance that? Can you get enough of those people who are willing to pay those increase uh, an increased premium and still generate the same kind of revenue that you would with far more people paying 
less, you know, whatever that equation is. Well, they, the, the parks for Disney made $29 billion last year, 2019. The movies for Marvel and Disney and Pixar and everything made, I believe it was 3.4 billion. So the, but the parks by far exceeded what they make with the entertainment. Although that's, that's isn't necessarily what you would think, but think about the advantage to staying at Disney is the properties. Now you can do hotels. Do we have hotels anymore? Where sure. People, thousands of people might be in a building. Sure. You think? Yeah, I don't. Uh, yeah, because I I don't think that the reverberations from this are going to be as dramatic as maybe it sounds like you do. Um, I do think in the short term, there's going to be a lot of fear. There's going to be a lot of caution. So I'm not saying that this all reverts to normal uh, very quickly. And again, it's not clear whether the government's going to allow that anyway. But yeah, well, of course, we still have hotels. Now, I think there's going to be a certain subset of the population, whatever percentage that's going to be, that are just going to say, we're not doing that stuff anymore. We're not going to hotels. We're not going to Disney World. We're not going to sporting events. We're not doing any of that. How much of that is, how, what's that percentage? I think probably less than 10% eventually. Well, then the better question is, not so much do people want to go to hotels. Are there hotels to go to? Well, what does that mean? Because they're bankrupt well, or because the government has put them out of business? Well, the government's put them out of business because they've banned people from being in large groups and they go bankrupt. I mean, these hotel chains, you got to have people stay in there. You you can't maintain these buildings. It's like banks. Do do we need a bank on every corner? Do we need a, a you know a pharmacy on every corner in major metropolitan areas? Or do they say, you know what? I mean, the malls have died. Effectively, malls are gone uh, throughout right, the country. Right, that's because of Jeff Bezos and online. Sure, it is. But, you know, Amazon's making a push for pharmacy. They have a they have a pharmacy service called Pill Pack where they will send you your pills in a pack for each day. If you take them three times a day, you'll get three different packs and it has what's in it. You tear up the pack and you take your pills. You don't need to go to the pharmacy. It's mailed to you every month directly to your house already set up for you. What? Why do you need to go to the pharmacy? It's the same price. Well, you, I guess the question is, why would you need to go to the pharmacy right now, pre-COVID? So th in other words... That that convenience was already available. It was. Yet many, many people. So the question is going to be, are there going to be far more people now who are out of concern, caution, fear, going to avail themselves of that, you know, the ability not to go there? Sure. I think there's probably going to be a segment of the. Here's the other thing to remember as we discuss all of this. And this gets back to sort of the baseline science about this virus, mm -hmm. which if you are in a demographic group from the age of zero to basically 50 mm -hmm. and you are otherwise healthy, okay, asking all these questions about, are you still going to do these things? You are basically at almost no risk in terms of this being a lethal virus. Mm -hmm. Okay. If you look at the, we talked about this last week. Mm -hmm. I mean, the, the percentage of people that are within that age range who have no other comorbidities, this is not other than in exceptional cases, this is not a lethal thing to get. It just isn't. In fact, it's not even a hospitalization for most people in that group. So the question becomes, is that realization going to sink in? Because the premise of your questions is, 
is everyone going to dramatically change how they live? Well, for that group, which is a fairly large swath of mm-hmm. the population, mm-hmm. the science says there really shouldn't be any reason for you to change how you live. Now, there may be a really big reason for people who are immunocompromised, for people who are over the age of 60, right? Though that portion of the population may going forward be rethinking dramatically, how is it that I'm going to live my life? Are Am I going to do less things? Am I going to do remote for all of that stuff, right? But I guess <laughs> the point is how much of this fear has seeped into the group that really based on all the information we have, and it's still not complete, are at very minimal to almost non-existent risk from this virus. Okay, so let's go back to the pharmacy for a second. Pharmacies make their money on prescriptions. Who has the most prescriptions, the high-risk group or the low-risk group? It's obviously the high-risk group. They're the ones with the most prescriptions per capita. So if we look at those patients, they're high-risk. They say, I don't want to go anywhere I don't have to. Nursing homes. Do nursing homes as we know them cease to exist? Because I'm not putting mom or dad in a place where, you know, if one person gets sick, it's going to wipe out the entire group. Is that something we start thinking about? Do we find a way to maybe bring people home and keep them at home longer than putting them in a home where now, you know, the last 30 years we've been dumping them at home? I don't think that nursing homes cease to exist. I do think a lot of nursing homes are going to go out of business and the ones that remain are going to have to dramatically change their model. Yeah. Right. In terms of, uh, you know, safety protocols for, you know, how many people we can have together in, in, you know, the common area as everyone eats their jello or whatever. I mean, it's, uh, yeah, there's going to have to be a lot of fundamental rethinking of how they do business, but I just don't think they they completely go away. Well, right because now, here's, here's the thing, Chad. There's always somebody out there who's going to use this. They're going to build a better mousetrap, right? Hopefully. The hotel example. Every hotel that goes bankrupt and has now you've got all of these buildings, right, that mm-hmm. are empty. They're not being used. Someone's going to look at that and say, I have a way to make this a viable business model. We're going to do it differently, and I'm going to make a killing because there is now an opening in the marketplace for whatever we provide. Sure. That's what's going to happen. That's what's going to happen in all of these areas. I agree. I, I think I think it will be different. That's the great reset. What's going to be different? And what's the the disruption in the system we've known for most of our lifetimes, if not longer, that will change because this forces people to change? I think there's a lot more fear out there. Now I don't think it's necessarily justified, but I think there's a lot of fear especially from the high-risk population. So you look at hospitals, you look at nursing homes, you look at physicians' offices, you look at pharmacies. All four of those areas are frequented and traveled by high-risk individuals. You know, most healthy people aren't going to the hospital on a regular basis. Unless they're visiting somebody, they're not in the hospital on a regular basis. So to them, it's not, you know, I'm not really traveling and that. I don't care about it till I need it. But there are there are groups of people I know groups of people who have canceled appointments that they need life-saving appointments because they're afraid to go for their appointment because they're afraid they might contract COVID-19. So they're giving up chemotherapy treatments. They're giving up uh, breast uh, exams. They're giving up prostate exams because they're afraid they might contract somebody in the vicinity of the office that's going to infect them. 
Yeah. So, I, well, I have two thoughts about that. I mean, for, for high risk individuals, I think the fear is legitimate in many ways in the sense that this is a, this is a nasty bug. If you're one of those people, like sure. it's, it's dangerous for them. Sure. So, but so that's, that's the one side of it. The other side of it is that the media, the drumbeat from the media has been so consistently hysterical, mm-hmm. right? The, the focus on the fatalities, the f- everything is the sort of the doom and gloom, right? Any, any positive news. And part of this is because it's linked to Trump. And so therefore we must debunk sure. all that, sure. that he, you know, that he endorses, even mm-hmm. if it's positive. One of the things I read that was uh, very interesting recently, you and I were talking this week with a couple other friends of ours, just about some sort of dissenting medical information, right? Mm-hmm. And there's now a consortium of doctors. And and this is like a range of specialists in this area from various different medical schools, hospitals. And they've these are these are frontline guys, right? So mm-hmm. these are guys that are in the trenches treating people every day. They're not sitting somewhere speculating, you know, about well, you know, what are the, what's the model showing? No, no, they're actually trying to save people. And be, and what they said is they, they published a bulletin and what this bulletin says, it's amazing. If you read it is that, you know, the main risk, the main driver of fatality from this virus is not necessarily the virus itself. It's the body's inflammatory response. Mm-hmm. That is what is killing people. They call it, I don't know how you pronounce this. I think it's either, it's the cytokine or cytokine storm, however you say that. Mm-hmm. I've never heard anyone actually say it out loud. Cytokine. But this idea that that's what causes the, you know, this this massive inflammatory response, which then causes the acute respiratory distress. And so their point is, is that these people, and they've been doing this, should be treated not only preventatively, but immediately when they show any symptoms with these sort of anti-inflammatory meds, including like steroid medication. Mm -hmm. And what did they find? That the CDC and the World Health Organization have been saying, no, 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 shouldn't do that at all. Now, (laughs) who knows why the CDC has said that, but what these doctors are saying is, look, we're the ones that are watching people come in. We're treating them. And again, this is some crackpot on YouTube. Okay, These are guys that collectively have treated thousands upon thousands of people across the country. And they're saying this is the first line of defense. Has the media published any of that information? No. 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 They're not talking so about it. So the point is, is that they have a reason for driving a certain narrative about this. And sure. it's not necessarily all the stuff that you should be doing or any positive indications. It's always negative, negative, stay at home. The sky is falling. Look at New York, fatalities, fatalities. And that has an effect mm-hmm. on everyone, including people that should otherwise probably be a little bit more optimistic about, you know what? Uh, I'm likely to be able to ride this out even if I get it. And, and that's my point. I think everybody thinks they're at high risk, even if they aren't. Not everybody. Yeah. There, a lot of people think they're at high risk. I won't say everybody because that would be foolish. I think a, there are a number of people out there who are not high risk by any stretch of the imagination, but they are deathly afraid of getting COVID-19. So they're changing behaviors to keep themselves out of harm's way. I mean, I know people that have been in the grocery store and they're getting visibly and physically angry at people around them because they're too close. You're within six feet. Forget the fact that if I sneeze on you, it's going to go 25 to 30 feet. You're within six feet. And that's what I was told. You can't be within six feet. 
back well, maybe up. Maybe your sneezes. My sneezes only go seven feet. Oh, well, okay. Then you, you don't have a very powerful sneeze. Obviously, I'm much more powerful than you. Uh, it's just, it's things like that. And you're right. The media has made that into the end all be all. Let's leave with the death first. That's what the media does. And if it hurts Donald Trump, great. That's, that's even better. better. Yeah. All right. Let's stop talking about COVID. Okay. I, is there, I, here's one thing I want to talk about. I know we've been, uh, you know, we're close to finishing, but yes. I, I wanted to mention this because this is something that of course has gotten completely lost in the news cycle, unless you've been paying attention. So I wanted to talk briefly about our friend, General Flynn. Have you been following <laughs> any of these developments? Yes. Okay. So for those of you that may have forgotten a very brief introduction, General Flynn was Donald Trump's national security advisor for what, about six weeks? weeks. <laughs> now, General Flynn's background, 33, 35 years in the military. Uh, you couldn't be more decorated as a guy. He's a warrior, very, very smart guy, very well connected uh, in the intelligence community, which is part of his problem because he made a lot of enemies uh, since he was very clear eyed about the problems in those areas. In any event, General Flynn, as the incoming NSA, uh, has a conversation with Sergei Kislyak, who's the Russian, whatever, ambassador, his counterpart for Russia. Yeah. This is, everyone concedes, exactly what he should have been doing as a national security advisor with an incoming administration. There's nothing problematic about this at all. And so what eventually happens is that the FBI attempts to entrap him. They interview him. And eventually Mueller's team prosecutes him for lying to the FBI, lying to the investigators. They drag him through and, and Flynn pleads guilty. Flynn pleads guilty. And now what's playing out is Flynn has a new lawyer, Sidney Powell, who has basically spent the last nine months unearthing. And I use this word generally shouldn't be used bombshell <laughs> after bombshell about the government's uh, misfeasance in this. And if you actually follow this story, mm -hmm. I'm not even going to say it's shocking anymore because depressingly, it appears that this was standard operating procedure for our FBI and DOJ at the highest levels. And it's disgraceful. So two of the things that have now come to what's happened is Sidney Powell, who's kind of like this pit bull has basically been demanding documents that the government should have turned over to Flynn that are owed to any criminal defendant they're called Brady disclosures, which basically means the government has a responsibility to turn over any exculpatory evidence that could be potentially used by the defendant. Now, that was complicated a little with General Flynn because he signed a plea agreement that said the government has no further obligation to provide him with Brady material. The problem is, is that what Sidney Powell has unearthed is that there was all manner of, here's a good word skullduggery, Chad, going <laughs> on by the government prosecutors. And two of the things that have come to light recently is they have unearthed literally notes from someone named Bill Priestap, who is basically in the hierarchy somewhere sort of between like Comey and McCabe. He's way high up. And then the, 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 the agents underneath him. And so they're talking about this initial interview with Flynn. And what you need to remember about this interview, and this is crucial, is they never had any legitimate reason to even investigate him for any crime whatsoever. Okay, so that was a complete pretext. Now you say, Tony, why do you say that? Well, because what he was doing in talking to the Russian ambassador 
completely legal, completely typical, absolutely nothing strange, unusual about any of that. And moreover, they were already surveilling those conversations. So in other words, they had a transcript of every word that was said by Flynn and by Kislyak. So if they wanted to charge him with a crime, they didn't even need to speak to Flynn. Okay. Cause remember this is all about Russian collusion. Right. Flynn was yet another, this is a guy, right. Who's fought for 33 years. Who's a decorated general, but he's a Russian stooge. Okay. <laughs> Probably the most hardline anti-communist guy you would find in our government. So what do they do? They realize we don't have any basis to actually investigate this guy. We're going to pretend that it's sort of like a buddy, buddy interview. They interview him. There's notes that literally say, is our goal to entrap this guy to make him lie? They closed the investigation on January 4th. We're about to close it. We know this from other documents that were just turned over. And who is the person that tells them, no, no, we need to hold this open. Did you, did you read who that was, Chad? I don't remember, but I'm going to guess it was Comey or McCabe. Well, ultimately it was, but it was our friend Peter Strzok. Oh, yes. Peter Strzok, <laughs> who is currently fired from the FBI. Currently? You think he's going to go back? There with Lisa Page, who was the guy that was heading up the Trump investigation, who was saying things like, we need an insurance plan, right? Uh -huh. Peter Strzok tells them, no, 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 hold it open. And then what do you know? The incoming Mueller prosecutors, along with Sally Yates, decide we're going to charge this guy potentially with a violation of the Logan Act, which there has never been a conviction in the nation's history under the Logan Act. And I think the last time there was even a charge under Logan Act was 1803. So it's a, it is an unused joke of a law that most people think is unconstitutional. In any event, they've also now discovered that Flynn's own lawyers engaged in a side deal with the prosecutors where they agreed, essentially, if Mueller's team does not prosecute Flynn's son, because that was the threat, right, right we'll right. cooperate. And they never disclosed that to the court. Now, why <laughs> is it important for that to be disclosed to the court, Chad? I think it's because it does a quid pro quo. Does it not? There's a quid pro quo. There's also, th this is the judge, any sentencing judge, must be told of uh, all circumstances relating to a plea agreement, but even more importantly, from that. the government perspective, why would the government be interested in hiding the fact that Michael Flynn had, let's say, an enticement to plea? Isn't that kind of like blackmail? Well, it's of? not only blackmail, but think about what they're going to use Flynn to do going forward. Well, they want to flip they him and use him against Trump. Flynn to hopefully be their star witness sure. against Donald Trump, right? And they threaten now, him if he if you don't perform, we'll prosecute your son. But not only that, in terms of hiding that side agreement, what are the defense lawyers for any of the people that they want to indict, claiming that they're part of the Russian collusion? What do you think they might have made of that <laughs> deal that the witness against them, Michael Flynn, had made when he pleaded when he pled? Give me that deal. <laughs> well. A defense lawyer has to know that information because the prosecution is going to be putting this guy on the stand to say, have we made any deals with you, General Flynn, to uh, induce your testimony in this case? And is this like the, the uh, jailhouse snitch who, have we given you any promises that we're going to reduce your yeah. time? No, no, I heard him say it. <laughs> 
And so the government, of course, is trying to hide from future defendants and their lawyers, which is a due process violation. Oh, yeah, we actually had this side deal where Flynn agreed to cooperate with us because otherwise we were going to prosecute his son. By the way, prosecute his son for some alleged failure to register as a foreign agent, which previously had never been prosecuted. So this entire exercise is yet another disgrace in terms of what they did to this guy. And what I'm hoping for now, remember they've got an uphill battle because Flynn pled guilty. Yeah. He then withdrew his guilty plea after more shenanigans by the government. But the judge Sullivan had basically said, you guys, you're barking up the wrong tree. If you think that I'm going to dismiss this, however, Oh, by the way, the number of documents that have been turned over by the reviewing prosecutor who was assigned by William Barr, the AG, mm -hmm. because there was so much going on that Barr said, I want you to take an independent look at this investigation. They're up to 23,000 pages of documents in Brady material that were never turned over. 23,000 pages that were suddenly discovered. <laughs> I guess, Chad, my question to you is, at what point are any of these people, any of them, McCabe, Comey, Strzok, Page? Oh, the other, the other fascinating part about Flynn, which you forget, is it, it was a felony to leak the transcript of his call with Kislyak initially to David Ignatius of the Washington Post, which is how this went into the media bloodstream. How is it that nobody has even attempted to investigate who is the person that just leaked this to the media? Ah, yawn. Nobody cares. Andrew McCabe so, is my guess. The only way <laughs> that the American public are going to have any confidence whatsoever going forward in the, the leading people who are at the head of all of these agencies, if there is a massive house cleaning, people need to go to jail for the stuff that was going on. And the other point is, if they can get away with this stuff against Michael Flynn, Okay, who's about the most decorated, most connected, a powerful guy. He's a general for crying out loud. What do you think they could do to Chad and Tony if they wanted <laughs> anything they want? We we said that about the FISA court. If it doesn't actually require evidence to be presented and you just make it up, then what's what's it really doing? You know, I I, I look at the Flynn case and I go, okay, they lied, they cheated. And nobody seems to care except the people who are affected by it. And it sounds like, Tony, you're doing a drain the swamp type of routine here. We need to drain. And I don't know how you get rid of career civil servants uh, like the FBI, DOJ, en masse. I, I don't know how you do that because thus far, even the political appointees can't get all in for Trump or anybody else. It's not a question of getting rid of all of them en masse. The question is, the only way that future behavior like this, criminal behavior, abuse, criminal abuse of their authority is going to be deterred is if any of the people that were actually doing this are going to go to jail, right? Ooh. If they're going to face real consequences so that the next person that thinks, I can do this with impunity. I can leak information to my buddies at the New York Times mm -hmm. without any accountability. Jim right? Comey. We can we can doctor, we can doctor material that is being provided to a FISA court without any accountability. And still right? have my we, job. <laughs> right. So as long as no one pays any penalty for this, 
this is going to continue. This culture of corruption, and that's exactly what it is, this rot that has infested the top of all of our apparently you know, major law enforcement agencies, nothing's going to change. So, ever. And I think most people are waiting for when are any of these people going to be held accountable the same way that you and I would be sitting in a federal prison right now yep. had we done any of this stuff? I think we both know the answer. The answer is never. The, the, the Republicans don't have the stomach to handle it, and the Democrats certainly aren't going to pursue it. So the answer is never. They should be. James Clapper, Jim Comey, Andrew McCabe, Hillary Clinton. Why is there not an actual investigation into these individuals to say, wait a minute, what did you know? When did you know it? And how did this all come out? And yet it just, they skate. The AG, or the, I'm sorry, the uh, Office of Inspector General doesn't really nail things. And I'm like, well, it's pretty clear to the average person this is what happened. Why is that? I don't know. And I think it's, it's the snake protecting itself. I, I, I really believe these career civil servants seem to think, you know, presidents come and go, Congress comes and goes, but I'm going to be here for my 40 years. And after that, I don't care. I'm going to do whatever I want. You know, when laws are done by the bureaucrats who put the rules in place and not actually make laws, then we don't really have a Congress anymore. We have a bunch of people who say, this is the title. You figure out what goes in the middle. You know, it's well, choose your own adventure. Another, another uh, casualty of our, uh, deeply partisan, deeply yeah. disgraceful media, which is remember the motto. I'm, I'm so, I'm so moved by the, the speak truth to power, right? <laughs> Afflict the powerful. If they were actually fulfilling what that job was, there would be dozens of reporters from the Washington post and the mm -hmm. New York times. And of course, all of these folks, these talking heads at CNN that would be dedicating themselves, winning Pulitzer prizes to expose. Remember this is what they used to do, right? Mm -hmm. The government, we're going to expose government corruption. Well, they're not really interested in exposing yep. government corruption. Yep. In fact, they're cheerleaders for mm -hmm. government corruption. So long as it's the corruption that's on the right side of history. Sure. So, they don't care about any of this. All they care about is, you know who, yes. the bad orange chancellor. And if we actually had even a semi-professional press that yeah. adhered to any level of journalistic integrity, maybe the fact that these stories would be publicized in a way that you don't have to go on some conservative blog to read about them, right? Or watch Fox news. There might actually be some political pressure on the legislative branch, right? To do something about this, but there won't be because for most people in this country, the stuff that we just talked about with general Flynn, they're never going to hear any of this. They just don't know because it's not going to be reported. Well, and, and I think that's the, I have not felt for in my lifetime that I really thought there was actual journalists out there. I think there were people who purport, purported to be journalists and that was it. They weren't journalists. Um, and I think every day I see that exposed as you're still partisan hacks. And unfortunately you're mostly progressive party, you know, political hacks. So this is what we got. This is where we are fine. You know, whatever. Here we go. Let's have a good time. I, I get disgusted by it. Uh, I fear for November, 
because I don't know what's going to happen in November. I think prior to COVID-19, I think it seems like a clear-cut win for Trump. I do not believe it's going to be as clear-cut and as easy as it should be. Biden's a worthless candidate. He's a know-nothing. He's got mental issues, whether it's dementia or whatever. But I think there's enough people to say, well, he's not Trump. He's, he's a body, but he's not Trump. And I thought he was supposed to pick his running mate by now, wasn't he? Wasn't Biden supposed uh, to pick? I enjoy tr- Stacey Abrams still uh, stumping oh. for her VP slot. Yikes. That's crazy. So uh, things get things get worse. I, I, I hope we go green someday soon and we can we can all go out in, in the sunshine together. Uh, that would be my preference. <laughs> we can all go out in our yellow biohazard suits for exactly. five minutes so long as there's <laughs> not more than 27.5 people yes. within four feet of us at any time. Exactly. Exactly. So that's all I got, Tony. How you feel? You got it all I, out? I think enough once again. So um, okay. <laughs> let's, let's try next week. No leading off with COVID. We have okay. to think of another. I'm fine with topic. that. I'm fine. With, I can do that. I can lead so off on lots of topics. Tell me when we start what it will be. Okay, I will. All right. Sounds good. Thank you. I'm Chad. Tony. Good night. This has been a Hannah Tree production.